Welcome to the Millennial Therapist Podcast with Mao and Nao. This podcast is hosted by two millennial therapists who are true crime, forensic psychology, and macabre obsessed. This is not your typical mental health podcast where only mental health and social work topics are discussed. We dabble in various topics from cultural humility to military mental health to ghosts to interesting ways our parents use the paranormal to discipline us. Ed Kukui, anyone? <laughs> Why so many topics? Because we're millennials. To make things more interesting, one is an Air Force veteran and a mom of two, the other is currently serving active duty, and both are children of immigrants working to honor their ancestors. So this is a take two of episode one of the Millennial Therapist podcast with Mao and Nao. Me forcing this podcast for so long came from my thirst of wanting a space for this new breed of millennials and therapists that I keep coming across. You know, Nao and I met year ago and it was just this instant connection of like oh my gosh we have so many identities yet there's these boxes that we feel like we have to fit in and it was so refreshing to not be the only one dealing with that i wanted to have the space for other people either you want to become a therapist you are a millennial you don't hate millennials, you're interested in therapy, you're interested in social work, any really multifaceted layer of yourself in just a place to be your true self, because we are weird, (laughs) we're inappropriate, just hopefully having a platform and a community for that. Little background about us. I am a child of immigrants and refugees. Both my parents were born and raised in Cambodia and came to the state probably early 19, no, mid 1980s to California and then resettled in Massachusetts. Neo, you also come from first generation. Yes, both my parents immigrated from Mexico, so I'm also first generation. Ended up being raised like uh, on a border region, really close to Mexico, and I feel like that was to this day something very special in my life. Now that I moved away, different perspective, but yeah, I remember when we first met. That was one of the first things that we clicked on <laughs> what it what it means to be first generation and going to social work, kind of seeing each other in a way of representation, like, oh my God, like, yes. yeah, it was, it was really refreshing. I always felt grateful for that moment. And now we're here like a year later. It's wild. And it's just so helpful because in a society where as a woman of color, we feel like we're constantly fighting for a seat anywhere, even amongst other women because again there's so many of these identities that we have and a lot of the work is also within ourselves of healing there's still a lot of oppression and racism and microaggression and gaslighting so i think this space for us alone will be so helpful because that's so important especially as a mental health practitioner because so much they teach us is of learning your own transferences and countertransferences, awareness, insight. Now, what was your educational tract? What did that look like? 
When I first applied to college, I actually, I was stuck between two majors. It was criminal justice or social work. Yeah. And, uh, right? Like, I was like, oh, I might be interested in law enforcement. I'm not sure. And I ended up going with social work. And I'm really glad that I did because I'm not sure if the other one would have been a good fit. <laughs> I mean, you, you would have rocked it. I would have seen you in live PD. <laughs> Fucking shit up. Uh, parked at Whataburger, like... Right. But yeah, so then, uh, yep, did my both my bachelor's in social work and my master's in social work. And eventually, I'm not, I'm not even sure how I came about working with veterans and military populations. But I remember there was a, a local uh, resource was taking volunteers to provide peer support to veterans. And then from I think this was like my second or third year of my bachelor's degree, kind of really were my my inkling has been towards too. So I, I think one of my one of my hopes was to be able to call myself a military social worker. And even though I'm in the field, like right in it, you just learn so much. In my head a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, it's, you know, I'm becoming like an expert in this field and I'm learning so much. Mm-hmm. And then once you're in it, you're like, yes, I'm still drinking out of the water hose. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, hey guys, right? I'm here. With everything going on in, in border cities and Latino communities, I think that's kind of what really drives my interest in social work and how that grew my passion. Because although I came from a school that like there's a lot of people that look like me and because we have similar race and ethnic backgrounds right. and, like, you know, just ethnic identities, that's not necessarily true for like the rest of the country. Right. Or even globally. Once I start to get more exposure as to what other cities more north you mm-hmm. go, I realized. Wow. Yeah, which then create different biases and personalities, experiences, for sure. You are now working as a military social worker with the active duty population. How has that been in regarding what you expected? I don't even know where to begin. You're, you're balancing a lot of things with doing military social work. There's a lot of like regulations and policies, balancing like our ethics and making sure it's evidence-based practice. So we, we kind of make it fit to ensure that like both needs are met. But one thing that doesn't change that, it's a case-by-case basis. Well, my work for somebody doesn't work for somebody else. That kind of keeps me true to the work. I'm so happy to hear that because regardless of all this red tape that you have to deal with, it's still essentially client-centered, right? And even if it's, it has to be evidence-based, at least you are meeting the client where they are. As That's so important. And I imagine in the military, you are not met where you are. A lot of times you are told to shut up in color and you're told to just fucking deal with it. Part of that culture shift... We're acknowledging these needs and we're just kind of ensuring that we, we do our job as social workers. Initially, I thought social workers only stayed in the mental health. You start meeting more people across the board and you realize that there's a lot of career expansion opportunities. So you're not like limited. Oh, good. So you're like, I have options. Right? Like, it's cool to see that, you know, these opportunities, especially when there's women of color stepping into these uh, leadership positions, it's just awesome to see. For sure. And I think that kind of speaks to the value that everybody else sees in social workers, too. Like, I will say, I get a lot of kudos from people when they hear I'm a social worker. Well, once they find out, like, I'm not DCF, because I'd be like, oh, I'm a social worker. They're like, oh, I could never do that, kids. I'm like, no, I'm not DCF. (laughs) I don't have that much strength to do that, so... (laughs) Social work is super intense and you deal with a lot of shit. It is a very broad and complex field. And I think there's so much red tape around the care of mental health. Like that's another piece that I want to advocate for of ending the stigma. You know, we've talked about like, why is the care not 
more preventative and proactive. Yes. Yeah. So we covered a little bit about our educational background, kind of our cultural background, both being children of immigrants and first generation American. And I think another identity that we have is we are officially obsessed with anything paranormal, true crime. That was another piece that we really bonded to, which you don't meet a lot of people that are into that. Now we do in this community that has really grown, but the amount of people that I meet aren't really into it still which I'm okay with especially like the paranormal stuff <laughs> I remember the first time you and I talked about about alien down in New Mexico yes. <laughs> we're like no <laughs> <laughs> so we took it serious and we were like did you hear about <laughs> yes like we were like throwing facts which is nice that you can like keep up a conversation with someone like that's when you know I think that's like it's creates such a strong bond because you're like you're not judging me like you are as weird as me and I totally appreciate that yeah Yeah. even if it gets like too weird I feel like okay like (laughs) I'm gonna roll with your weirdness (laughs) right right also kind of having this love for the paranormal and true crime this dark stuff that is very taboo in multiple societies not even western society but also in the mexican latina latinx community and in the asian community you don't talk about things like that that's not proper that so for us to be like but i need to tell you (laughs) i need to talk about it (laughs) yes it's nice what sparked your love for all things criminal, conspiracy theories, paranormal? The show Cheaters. <laughs> that was kind of hard. Do you remember, like, they used to, like, do some investigative work within the show <laughs> and, like, follow, like, the couples. And then uh, one day, I don't even know how old I was, but out of nowhere, I'm reading that, th- that the main person, like, got stabbed and... Like this wild like thing that that happened to him. He was always kind of like trying to facilitate things like when the camera crew would catch them, you know, maybe in a little bit telenovelas, you know, yes. <laughs> there's some creativeness going into those stories. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the confrontations. Oh, oh yeah. So some of the storylines, but it's so good. <laughs> it is so good, though. That's awesome. So cheaters. How about the paranormal piece or the... Uh, well, I think growing up, you know, you kind of grow up with like some urban myths kind of deal, like mm-hmm. folklore tales, like El Cucuy, La Llorona, The Weeping Woman. And um, I, I think in that moment, like when your parents are telling you, like you don't even think to question it, right? You're like, well, what is that? Like, <laughs> right. Make it sound scary. Maybe I shouldn't be scared of it. And so, like, I remember, like, you're misbehaving, and the boogeyman's going to get you. And you're like, no. <laughs> or, like, La Llorona's going to come. And, you know, yeah, I never questioned where it came from or what. Um, you guys never had the conversation of, like, but tell me about him. Yes, I, I think I just listened to my mom, and I was like, okay, you know. But uh, I, I'm, I'm going to give her a call and ask her. <laughs> What what do you mean? What did you mean back then? Was this even? (laughs) That's so funny because I think that was such a little shit that I'd be that I would be like, tell me, bring him. (laughs) I was such a dick. Like I remember my parents. So I didn't grow up with like a scary thing like that. Um, Oh, but I grew up with threats for sure. My my mom would be like, I'm gonna send your food to Cambodia and like guilt. We had a lot of guilt of like. Like, you're so lucky you were born in the States. And I was like, you should have stayed in Cambodia. I didn't ask you to come. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. I was, you're like, okay. 
Yeah. You want to go there? And then she'd be like, oh, I'm going to take your food and send it. I was like, send it then. It's not going to last. <laughs> baby Mouse, man. Yeah, maybe Baby Mouse is a savage. I didn't try that with my dad, though, because homie didn't play that. I'm like, oh, sorry, sir. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I apologize. I took my food. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it's funny now because my daughter is the same. She will call my bluff. So now I have to actually like, follow through. Like, you don't know how many toys I've thrown away. Because I was like, if you don't clean that up, I'm going to throw it away. Because consequences, she's like, throw it away then. And and I do. Baby mouth within her. <laughs> I know. And you know her. She's so sassy. So, yeah. I love her. Yeah, I definitely grew up with a lot of like, you are lucky you were born here. Like a lot of like, you should be grateful, which I was, but still what I'm seeing in this millennial generation is that we're like bucking all of these taboos and all these expectations, which I really, really appreciate and has created such a great platform for us to be our true selves. And also as a therapist during our training in social work they always teach you about cultural competency right as us being social workers now compared to 15 20 years ago i think it's so different we are such a different breed because we're like dur be empathetic and appreciate other people's cultural i agree and i feel like Back then, if I put myself back then, I feel like the way that it was conceptualized and framed to me, it's as if it was something to like master, but you can master people's cultures like a CEU. And I love this term, cultural humility. One of my mentors introduced me to that term. We got to come from a place where we're here to like learn from people and um, really take the lead. We're here to be guided. (laughs) Yes. And I think it gives the, the client power because they're they're already coming into such a vulnerable space and spot regardless if they're coming for therapy or like management or resource they're coming in as in like i don't have something and then you sit here and be like well mexican families i work with like all right no you don't know so yeah just being humble and saying giving them that space to to honor that and i think too when it comes to the paranormal peace i always wonder like if i told my therapist right away like all of the shit that i believe in i would be immediately impatient (laughs) feeling like spirit or sensing something is not right things of that nature yeah unless they're really kind of familiar kind of like uh, where are you coming from like what is this And I hate dropping the word, but I think we have to because this is the word that has been used for so long and it still does, um, which has now become a derogatory, which I appreciate, but it's crazy. It sounds crazy. Like if I was to say like, oh, my, me and my mom and my dad leave um, fruit and food outside for our dead ancestors to come and eat it. Like, they'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, why are you doing that? (laughs) Do do you know that they're gone? Yeah, they're yeah, exactly. They're like, no, honey, they're they're dead. Like, no, no, they're not. Oh, like their spirits and honoring ancestors are important to us. Yeah, right. Something bad will happen if I don't do it. <laughs> like they know if I don't do it. <laughs> right, exactly. They can see me. So I think that's such an an interesting thing that not struggle, but I have to be like, I have to be very aware and conscious of is respecting people's faith and spiritual beliefs and not to pathologize it so much because you're not doing any service by pathologizing it. Mm -hmm. Like what's the, what's the cultural assessment here? Like 
what was the report like? Um, and what was the context of the situation? Like, right? what if someone's grieving? Like, yeah, it's normal to maybe yeah. think that you're hearing your, your loved one. Absolutely. That's such a good point. Absolutely. Like, um, it could be grief. It could be PTSD symptoms. It could be flashbacks, right? It could be anxiety. But the way people verbalize it, it sounds like hallucinations. And so automatically, you're like, oh, there's, there's a symptom of some type of illness. So I think a piece that is so different in our social work breed therapist is that we look at the context so much more. Right, and we're, we're kind of stepping back and letting them identify what it really is. Right, and what it means to them. Exploring there with you. Now, of course, if we see something, uh, we're just going to address it. Like, hey, listen, like I'm a little worried. Of course, because again, like you said, social work ethics. Yes, but for the most part, people, you know, I, they trust us to be open about this experience. And I don't know why it's, it's, we're talking like a not only like the practice, but the piece of documentation, right? Like ensuring that what uh, we include in the information is accurate and it's not just a, a clinical impression that is only boxed by our perception. Um, right. And, I, and that it's not copy and paste. Put the context of it. It's not fair to the client if you're putting quotations around like I see people around me when that person is grieving. As we explore it more and more and I think about what this podcast can look like, how we can weave social work and our love for weird things I think it makes sense because of that psychology and cultural piece that already have such passion for <laughs> like we're in it we're like right in the middle of it right so I think we will have a lot of stuff to to talk about to unpack and then hopefully bring in listeners suggestions questions I, any questions about what it is to be a social worker a therapist a millennial a veteran if you have your own ghost stories till next time homies thank you for joining us and be sure to come back where we continue to explore true crime psychology the paranormal mental health and everything in between we would love to hear from you so email us at millennialtherapistspod at gmail.com with your ghost stories paranormal experiences questions about therapy and counseling or the social work field and don't forget to share subscribe and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts remember you are valued you are enough and you are not alone please subscribe and review Bye-bye. Although we are licensed mental health therapists and may cover therapy-related subjects, the topics in this podcast should not substitute professional, psychological, or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you are a victim of a crime which includes but not limited to stalking, human trafficking, financial crimes, or sexual assault, please know the Victim Connect Resource Center can help. They are a referral helpline where crime victims can learn about their rights and options confidentially and compassionately. A traditional telephone-based helpline is one 855 victim or one 855 Or you can connect with them at chat.victimconnect.org or at the website victimconnect.org. If you or someone you know is in crisis, whether they are considering suicide or not, please call the toll-free lifeline available 24-7 across the United States by calling one 800 273 8255 or visit org. U.S. and Canadian listeners can also text HOME to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor. UK listeners text HOME to 85258 
and Ireland Listeners takes home to 50808. For more mental health resources and support, international listeners can visit the website unitedgmh.org slash mental-health-support to find more mental health services and resources. And if you are a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, connect with the Veteran Crisis Line to reach caring, qualified responders with the Department of Veterans Affairs at 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 or text 838-255. Or you can always visit veteranscrisisline.net. If you or anyone you know may be experiencing domestic violence, you can find resources and support with the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Visit thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-7233.